Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Rachel. And we are the, the Steministas. So this week, we're going to be covering a story involving growing brains in mm. dishes. Like brains in a vat sort of brains? Mm. We'll get into exactly <laughs> what they are. <laughs> Brains are called organoids is the technical term for it. And they are clusters of cells that organize into organ-like structures that carry out similar functions of the normal human structure. So in the case of brain organoids, they are cells that kind of clump together like a brain would and can act similarly as a brain in a way. We'll get into that. But the founding cells of these structures actually come from stem cells. So either the induced pluripotent stem cells, which we've talked about before, which is where you can take adult cells and reprogram them into cells that seem embryonic, or also they can do this with human embryonic stem cells. And this story is super interesting because Rachel actually works with and studies organoids as part of her research in grad school. Organoids can be very diverse. There's an organoid for almost every system, right? People are making them for liver, for kidney, for intestines is I think one of the first ones that was generated. Um, But today we're going to be focusing on the more controversial organoids and these involve the brain organoids and also um, two organoids that I had never heard of before I started researching this, which are called gastroloids and placentoids. So before we get into organoids, are they almost like a 3D structure and that's why they are able to act more like the normal tissue as opposed to just cells that are grown in a petri dish. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, they they're grown in a 3D clump, and you can do this actually by having the cells float in suspension, or in some case, there's some kind of scaffold that the cells actually grow on. Okay. So there's a couple ways you can achieve this, but the main point is they're in 3D, and they don't have you know we've talked about 3D versus 2D before, and how not really normal for cells to spread out on this flat dish. Right. I mean, if you think of our body, we're not 2D little paper people. We have a lot of structure and a lot of 3D aspects that our cells grow that way. And I think one of the coolest things about organoids, at least brain organoids, is that they are self-organizing. This is kind of like you leave it to the cells to do what they do best. And mm-hmm. you don't really have to give them a lot of directional cues. So th- I, th- I think there's, you do need to push the stem cells in the, in the direction of the neural fate with a couple factors. But then at that point, they just kind of assemble into this structure that looks like a brain. I mean, it, it even looks like a brain. It has some of the curving structures that mm-hmm. we have in the court. Like if you think of you're looking at a brain and the cortex has those um, little folds, mm-hmm. these organoids can develop those folds if you if you leave them long enough. So you basically take these induced pluripotent stem cells, you add some chemicals to them to make them think that they're, uh, that they're brain cells, and you kind of just let them grow, and then they develop into these 3D clumps? Exactly. And kind of one of the tricky parts is, actually, when you start with the stem cells, you need to make a clump of cells. There are companies that will sell equipment you can use to kind of aggregate these cells or clump them together um, into these 3D structures, which we call embryoid bodies. And the brain organoids contain 
neurons, of course, but also glia cells. And these are non-neuronal cells that, that support the neurons. I've talked about astrocytes before. Her favorite kind of cell. <laughs> My favorite. <laughs> the stars. Um, yeah, so kind of the more mature organoids that have been growing for months and months in cultures will have astrocytes. But um, even the young ones have like immature glia support cells. So you talk about these brain organoids. Are there different types of cells in these organoids, or are they just straight-up brain cells? Actually, that's interesting. You should mention that. Um, so people have done studies where they dissociate these cells into single cells, and then they do single-cell RNA-seq on them. So this basically measures the gene expression of those cells to see if they're actually acting as brain cells and turning on certain brain pathways. Exactly. You look at which, which pathways are being expressed, which genes are being expressed. Um, and for the most part, yes, these are neuronal cells. But um, when people have looked at these organoids with um, electron microscopy, they I found this in the supplemental figures in someone's paper, of course. They don't want to highlight this, but they have seen like muscle-like fibers. Yeah. There's a brain? Yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So, I mean, in some ways, these organoids aren't exactly what's going on, right? This is not the same as a brain go growing in an embryo. But definitely, overwhelmingly, uh, these are mostly neuronal or glial cells. And I mentioned already a, a couple different ways that you can make the organoids. There's so many, so many, so many, so many methods that you can use to make these um, organoids, which makes it complicated <laughs> to go through these papers and, and make conclusions about what people are doing um, when everyone's kind of using a different method. Um, but in general, you can break it down into two different methods. Um, people use those non-guided um, protocol that I mentioned before, where you just give the stem cells a little push and they kind of form themselves. And this type of organoid will make cells that are um, kind of representative of the cortex or the front brain. But you can also be more specific and provide additional cues and force the organoid to um, develop into more specific regions, like the hindbrain. And then people have even taken like a few different protocols and combined hindbrain with forebrain and fused oh the two goodness. together. Well, and that is, I mean, talking about their methods, when we look at scientific papers, oftentimes we will look at someone's methods and use the same methods for our paper. But if everyone's using different methods, and you've already mentioned, we've mentioned before in a previous actually video, where working with these induced pluripotent stem cells, there's so much variability. Because if they come from different people, you're just going to have variability because of that. And if you're also using different protocols and then trying to compare your results, that seems like it's almost going to be impossible. Yeah, and I should mention this is not just a problem with the organoid field, but also I also just do 2D cultures for the astrocyte glial cells. And even for that, there's so many different ways you can generate these cells. And it just kind of depends what do you want to do with the cells at the end of the day. Um, so for me, I want to study astrocytes in these organoids. So I'm going to use the protocol that ends up giving you the most proportion of astrocytes, which happens to be the non-guided protocol, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
but for someone else, they might be very interested in the hindbrain. So they might use a different protocol. Um, and I think it makes sense that there's so many protocols out there because this is such a new field and we're just figuring out how to do all these things and we can't help ourselves. We just have to tweak one little thing and, you know, see if it gets better. <laughs> the scientists <laughs> always tweaking. I mentioned the time span before too, but I, I do want to point out that you can grow, um, I don't know about other organoids, but brain organoids you can grow for a very long time. You can keep these cells up to two years in, in culture. Dang, that's impressive. And also I'm sure a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> um, but it is pretty cool. However, the longer that you keep these cells, the bigger and bigger the organoids are getting. Mm -hmm. And when they grow beyond a certain threshold, you start to run into this problem where the cells on the inside are, are dying. And that's because they're not getting the nutrients from oh. the media. Because these, these are just brain cells. They don't have blood vessels. Oh, that's a good point. Yeah, because in our brain, we have so many other cells. Are there still blood vessels in the brain because of the blood-brain barrier? or Yes, there are blood vessels in the brain, but they are covered by a coat of astrocyte and VEET. Oh. Uh, sorry, that's kind of jargon. Astrocytes coat the blood vessels so mm -hmm. that... You know, there's a there is this barrier, and nothing toxic is getting across to the neurons. Interesting. Also, a cell called pericytes. <laughs> but I just care about the astrocytes. <laughs> They're the star of the show. <laughs> so this all seems like a lot of work, and we don't know what we're doing. Why do you think we even want to make these organoids? What's the point of studying them? I mean, it seems like they're a great way to study how the brain develops since you're able to take a few cells and then have them grow and grow over time. I mean, when people think of pregnancy, we don't really know how babies' brains develop in the womb because you can't do experiments on that because it makes sense. Um, so we don't really know how that initial brain development happens. And when do human beings become conscious? When do the first neuronal synapses form? When do you have these messages start sending? So this is an interesting way to kind of look into that. That just blows my mind that there's so much about the initial brain development that we don't know. And it, it makes sense. Like you said, you can't, you know, it wouldn't be ethical to be doing these invasive monitoring mm -hmm. procedures on a pregnant woman. Um, but it just blows my mind in this information age. Like We know about DNA and gene yeah. expression and we can do mass spectrometry and image to the, you know, at atomic level, but we don't know these basic things about our brains. Yeah, that is pretty huge. And especially, we know that there's a lot of mental illness in the world, too. Maybe understanding that early development could help us understand if we know how it normally should work, then maybe we can know, okay, this is how it's not working in disease or not working in mental illness. I mean, that's a lot of why we study those really basic molecular mechanisms to understand what happens normally so that we know what's happening in the disease. Another case where these brain organoids kind of caught attention of the news is you, you probably remember the Zika virus outbreak. What was that a few years ago? Mm -hmm. um, where people use these brain organoids to model what happens when Zika virus um, infects these developing brains. 
and beyond disease. I mean, if you want to study the effects of what's happening to a developing brain, like think about the implications for toxicology. Oh, for sure. I mean, we've been exposed to so many things in our environment. We have no idea how they affect us, our skin, our muscle, our brain. So in a way, it's it's kind of advantageous to have this system that is kind of representative of developing humans, mm-hmm. right? This can be a drawback in some cases um, because these cells are so immature. Some people argue they're not good models for diseases that happen in, in adults, such as neurodegeneration, but we'll get into that later. So yeah, how similar are these organoids to an actual human brain? In some ways, incredibly similar. I already mentioned that they have neurons and glia, um, which you would see in the normal brain, and they even start to form those those same structures, like the, the twist of the cortex. Um, they also have some of the same functions as the brain. So this is one of the key definitions of an organoid, right? It has to display some kind of function of that organ. And people have observed that the neurons can send electrical signals to each other. We've measured that. Um, And they can have this spontaneous electrical activity. Also, these organoids can actually respond to outside stimuli. So if you shine a light... If you shine a light on organoids that have, um, you know, some of them have photoreceptor cells and retinal type cells, and they can actually respond to this light. You shine the light and um, you'll have a spike in neuronal activity. Yeah. But I mean, these aren't really the same as a brain that would develop in an embryo. Because you, we kind of mentioned you don't have the blood vessels with all the nutrients. I mean, there's no skull to kind of act as a mechanical cue to tell the brain this is how far you can grow exactly and when you look at them in a dish too um they don't even really look the same you know they're these tiny little pea-sized things Mm -hmm. it's not a a brain and i think that's a really important um distinction a lot of like the news articles about this call them mini brains and they really aren't they're organoids they're different just based off the size these organoids have maybe 2 million cells in them, whereas the adult human brain has closer to 86 billion neurons. Whoa, that's a huge difference. Yeah. And I did mention that these organoids have some of the same structures as human cells, but they definitely don't have all the compartments. Like, for instance, they don't have the hippocampus, you know, especially the non-guided ones have mostly cortex tissue, but they might lack cerebellum tissue. So you don't really have all the ingredients that you need to to make up the full brain. So you might be wondering how they actually measure the electrical activity in these organoids. And they do that using EEG, which stands for electroencephalography. And this is how they measure the electrical activity. You might have seen this before in like a TV show, like Scrubs or something. (laughs) They're the waves that show up. Yep. So that's the same kind of technology that they're using on these tiny little organoids. That's hilarious. Yeah, because scientists know that brain waves come in many different flavors. So you have certain waves, like high-frequency waves, and these indicate alertness and higher thinking activities. And these also include gamma. These are the gamma and beta waves. But in a relaxed state, your brainwave frequency decreases, and this is includes the alpha waves. You might experience this while taking a walk or listening to music. And then if you're daydreaming, you can have the deep theta waves. 
and then delta waves are the slowest in our experience during deep sleep. So your brain goes through so many of these different waves just during the day and different activities. So which ones do they actually measure in the organoids? Are they just measuring all of them, and what have they found? So up until recently, they haven't really seen anything close to the kinds of waves that humans see in terms of the frequency, right? They can see these electrical spikes, but they're very far apart. Um, So typically they'll see maybe at fastest one spike every 20 seconds. This is close to 0.2 hertz if you want to put a number on it. Um, Whereas something that people might experience in delta is anywhere from 0.5 to 2 hertz. Mm -hmm. These are the slowest waves for humans. Um, So the activity is there, but it's very different. The other thing that's important to point out is that we have kind of been able to measure brain activity of developing humans, and this is through uh, measuring brain waves in premature babies that are born. These babies can be born anywhere between 25 weeks up to 39-ish full weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, up to 39 weeks. What they notice about developing humans is that there's a lot more silence than you have in adult humans. Like no waves at all. Exactly. So you'll have the spikes of waves and then waiting some time and then more spikes. But it's not quite as slow as what they see in the organoids. So it's almost like their brain's shutting off and like having these spikes of activity to make things happen and then need time to recover. Exactly. And the silence gets shorter and shorter as they develop. I'll point out that the reason why they're measuring these EEG waves in the in the premature babies is only to monitor them to make sure that they're okay and there's no damage or anything. Mm-hmm. It's not like for the purpose of, of doing experiments. Yeah, so this data yeah. just happens to be there and that's why we can look at it. Going back to the organoids, I do want to point out that I haven't talked about this yet, but there is a lot of variability when they measure the brain activity. And that's true not just for brain activity, but for lots of features, including the size, those structures that I was talking about. I've grown these in the lab. <laughs> and um, the size can range from you know pea size to half a pea. And sometimes they're perfect spheres, and sometimes they have weird shapes coming out. Whoa. Yeah, that could have a really big effect on signals and what it's able to do. Yeah. Um, so I think at this point it's it's just a little bit variable. And even when people do these experiments where they look at the um, gene expression with those single-cell RNA-seq experiments, they often pool different organoids together. Oh, wow. They're not looking at a single organoid. I wanted to talk a little bit about a recent paper that came out just because it's kind of been making waves in the news. That's how... And then I actually picked up on this story originally. And that um, that paper was published by Allison Motri's lab. And you may, if you're in, in really into organoids, you may have heard of Allison Motri already. He's a Brazilian uh, researcher that currently works at the University of San Di- UC San Diego. He became famous for his work on Zika virus, where he used brain organoids to model what happens when the when the developing human brain is infected by Zika. And he was the first lab to show that this drug, Cephosbavir, 
which is an FDA-approved compound that people usually use to treat hepatitis C virus, can actually prevent vertical transmission of the Zika virus. Other labs did show um, that it can um, it can prevent infection of Zika virus in actual cells, in in vitro cells, but he showed in a mouse model that it prevents transmission from the mom to the to the baby. So he was able to basically grow the organoid to test it out on mice and then use a mouse model. Yeah. That's really that's really impressive because I mean a lot of people make these mouse models and have very little information just maybe from doing cells growing flat in a petri dish and that might not be seen if you moved it over to the mouse. But in this case, the organoid is kind of like in between. You have that 3D structure and more of the development of the tissue. Right. And I, I think Zika is, is pretty hard to study in mice because they have to use like a special humanized mouse because the mice aren't normally infected with this virus. So that can be really complicated. And it's actually, you might argue, a little easier to look at it in the organoid. But they did do the um, vertical transmission study in the in the mouse model, which is really cool um, because one of the main problems with Zika virus is you're worried about all these pregnant women that they're being their babies are being born with smaller brains. And now we have this drug. It's FDA approved already and it should be easy to give it to them if we have a spike in Zika virus again. Um, So that's a little background on Dr. Mobster's lab. But in this paper, he actually um, focused on following up on the previous work on cerebral organoids, and he really wanted to do a better job of characterizing these structures. So there are still a lot of things we don't know about how they develop. So people have done these RNA-seq experiments, but they've never looked at how the gene expression is changing at different time points. So he looked at very early organoids, one-month-old, three-month-old, six-month-old, and 10-month-old. And he looked at a total of 15,990 cells. Did he do the pooling method, or did he sequence them all in order again? That I don't know. I mean, I guess if he's sequencing from one organoid, that's kind of like, it doesn't show too much data. It did really bother me that he only looked at 15,990 cells. Like you think ten, looked at sixteen thousand. Yeah, ten more cells, dude. No, <laughs> probably just doing that to be weird. <laughs> so, what did he find? I mean, his results weren't particularly surprising um, for this experiment. Um, he basically found that there are a lot of what you would expect, and what we've talked about: neuronal cells, glial cells, etc. He did see that the population was shifting from progenitor cells towards more mature cells. So those astrocytes that I talked about, those are much more mature cells, and they didn't really start popping up until six months. Mm -hmm. He also found that, you know, I say this blanket term of neuron, but you have different kinds of neurons in your brain. Some of them are um, excitatory and some of them are inhibitory because you don't want too much brain activity. Sometimes you need to tell your neurons to shut up. <laughs> oh, my goodness. At night when you're trying to sleep? <laughs> exactly. Stop telling me what to do. 
Um, so he found these inhibitory, that there is a mixture of excitatory and inhibitory neurons in the brain, which is cool because you can start thinking that maybe there are these mm. complex pathways. Mm-hmm. Did he end up looking at electrical activity? Yes. And this is where people start to freak out. For this study, people had only measured up to about 0.5, maybe 1 hertz at most of electrical activity. And this is close to a spike every 20 seconds. And that's like below human range, right? Yes. It is kind of close to the delta range, um, but it's very low. And he was able to pick up from the time point of four months that there was he, he was measuring activity around 2 to 3 hertz. And this is well within the delta range and beyond four months it just started to increase exponentially the amount of spikes so they're almost conscious and sentient maybe well that's an interesting question also in looking at these electrical waves he used that data that i talked about from the um, premature babies he worked with a um, computer scientist Mm -hmm. to generate a an algorithm that could predict the age of the individual, you know, if you were looking at human brains. And beyond six months, sorry, beyond 25 weeks, the computer got very confused over what was an organoid and what was a human. Oh, my God. That's how similar these waves were to developing organoids. That's slightly scary. Yeah, if you look at the electrical data and compare it to a delta wave, they actually have a graph in the paper with the raw um, electrical activity. And they draw what a delta wave would look like over it with a black line, and it just matches up exactly. Wow. So in doing this research, I actually read a lot about Allison Mochu's lab. Um, I just want to talk a little bit about some of the other projects he has going on um, with these organoids because they're really cool. Um, he has one project where he's taking the electrical signals, that the, just the spontaneous signals that they measure in the organoid, and feeding that data into a robot. And then the robot walks around. <laughs> this sounds like some crazy sci-fi other world thing, but it's happening in labs near you. Exactly. And then he wants to collect sensory data from the robot and give it back to the organoid to see how it interacts. Um, Another really cool project he has is that he's actually been growing these organoids in space. Space brain. Why would he want to do this? Um, Well, you know, with the advent of space travel... We might be, uh, who's the guy? Tesla? No. Oh, Musk. Elon, Elon Musk, Musk. yeah. <laughs> They're like the same person. <laughs> yeah. Elon Musk is going to, like, get us up there, right? Yeah. So. Well, and it's interesting he wants to look at that because we really don't know much about space travel and its effects on the human body. I mean, recently Scott Kelly, the astronaut, went up for a year, and he has a twin brother, Mark, and Mark stayed here, and... They basically were able to compare all these different changes in the twins to see what was the effect of space on Scott and compare him to his brother. They looked at everything from blood to brain function to uh, 
telomere length to see if he was aging. They looked at gene expression, epigenetics. But one of the things they found with the brain was that after six months up there, Scott really struggled with some uh, some concentration and being able to do like these complex puzzles and make quick decisions on the fly. And if you think about if we want to send people to Mars for three or five year missions, if that after six months, if you start not being able to react as well, that could lean life or death in a space danger situation. So it's kind of cool that they want to see how gravity could, microgravity could affect the brain. Definitely. And I mean, thinking way into the future, if you start colonizing these planets, how would a developing human be affected by microgravity? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they haven't done, no one's been pregnant in space. We have no idea what that would be like. So this is kind of a way to model that. Not exactly right, because these aren't the same as human embryos, but the other thing that's cool about sending these organoids to space is that um, Emma brought up the fact in the NASA story, one of the things that happened was the telomeres got shorter. I mean, they they did go back to normal size, right? Um, And your telomeres basically indicate your biological age. Exactly. Didn't they recover when he came back? I think they stayed short. Yeah. So so space kind of ages you. Yeah. And I mean, that makes sense with all the radiation you're exposed to. So they are kind of hoping that, I mean, one of the problems I brought up with organoids is that they're very immature. They, They aren't totally like the adult brain. But what if you could use space to kind of age these cells? And could you make better models for neurodegenerative disorders? be fascinating just have a whole lab up in the sky like i mean they already have a lot of lab equipment up there but throw the organoids and do experiments yeah and the, just the logistics of these experiments you know as a grad student it sounds like a nightmare <laughs> they yeah. they astronauts are doing these experiments for them yeah and they have not been trained in science like this for five or whatever years so they have to learn like, I read Scott Kelly's book recently about his time up in space, and they did, I think, a hundred or so experiments while he was up there, all these different kind of experiments. And they had to learn how to dissect things and draw blood from each other, Ooh. and it's pretty intense. They have a centrifuge up there, too. See, I'm a control freak, so I don't think I could be that far away from my <laughs> experiments. Yeah. <laughs> Although they do have um, cameras set up, I think, so they can mm. constantly monitor stuff, and then, you know, the researchers can can tell them, oh, it looks like the media needs to be changed. The pH isn't right, which yeah. which we can tell because the media changes color based on pH. <laughs> so we've talked about all the potentials for organoids, even if they're kind of crazy, far-out science fiction potentials. But are there any downsides? I mean, especially since you've worked with them and grown them. Absolutely. I, I think I've been kind of peppering them out through the podcast today. <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, Number one, I think, is that growing them is just really expensive. These factors that I talked about that push the stem cells into the neuronal state, they're expensive. And the media that you use to culture them is expensive. And, you know, there's only so many companies that you can buy them from. It's not like you can mix this up in your own lab very well to an extent. Even if you can, like, everything that you 
it's just it's expensive for a reason everything that you put into it is precious right um it's time consuming i mean think about the the time points i talked about nine months nine months as a grad student my phd is only going to last like five six years yeah that's so much work yeah and and during those nine months you're changing the media at some points every day oh that's the worst every day rain or snow (laughs) so crazy yeah and if you're like seven months in and then can't get the lab then they just die seven months of work oh yeah that's or if it gets contaminated Yep. I am so lucky to collaborate with the stem cell core at UNC. My collaborator, Adriana Beltran, she's fearless. She <laughs> comes in in the snow. Oh, my goodness. She'll drive through anything. <laughs> so our cells are in good hands, but, yeah, I mean, anything can happen in, in nine months. So the Moiltree Lab is actually trying to um, automate this process. With them, like fancy, you know, that won't really help the expensive part of the problem, but it. Like fancy robots changing media and stuff. Yeah. That was one thing my husband said once. He's like, could I come into your lab and design a thing so your media could be changed? And I was like, there's just so many variables of getting a dish out of the incubator, taking off the media, washing it, adding new media. But that'd be so cool. It'd save people a lot of time and effort. Oh, exactly. Not money. Yeah. But just, I mean, our time is expensive, too. The I, I was listening to the podcast where the, this PI was talking, and he was saying, you know, I care about my postdocs. I want them to be using their brains, not, like, doing these mindless tasks, like changing media all the time. <laughs> they just don't get to use their brains and get to make other brains. <laughs> there was a, a post I saw on Twitter recently, and it was, like, describe your job and the simplest way possible or in the worst way possible. And I was like, well, I guess I just move small liquids from one thing to another. And they could be like, oh, I just make, I can make brains. <laughs> no context, whatever. Just make them. <laughs> so, I mean, we've kind of danced around the whole topic of ethics, but this brings up a lot of ethical questions, especially if you think about these organoids and the fact that they can have these brainwaves that mimic what we see in preterm babies. Yeah, and I just want to preface all of this by saying this is not even something that philosophers or experts in the field can agree on. So we're going to try to present all the ideas out there. But, I mean, there is no right answer, which is often the case with ethics, right? It's gray. Yeah. A lot of... Um, what I've talked about already and what we're going to talk about with ethics actually came from a podcast series that I listened to um, from the University of California schools. It's called UCTV's Science Podcast, and you should be able to find it by searching for um, the PI's name that I've been talking about. Uh, his name is Allison Muotri. That's M-U-O-T-R-I. And we'll throw his name in the show notes, too. Yeah. Um, so the first thing is, which you kind of brought up already, sentience or consciousness. What even is consciousness? <laughs> yeah, and that's, I mean, you mentioned it. Philosophers don't know how to describe it. Scientists don't know how to describe it. No one can really agree on a definition. I mean, when you Google 
when you Google it, Wikipedia does have a definition because it's Wikipedia. <laughs> and it says that sentience or consciousness is sentience or awareness of existence. But I mean, how do you even define if something is aware of its existence? It's kind of a recursive definition, in my opinion. Yeah, it's not, it's not satisfying. Um, and as a scientist, I also care about how you want to measure consciousness. These organoids don't have mouths. They can't tell us. Right. They can't declare, I think, therefore I am. <laughs> <laughs> and we work a lot with animals in the science field, and we are taught how to minimize as much pain of the animal as we can as because if they can feel pain that's often sometimes what people think of, oh if something can feel pain then it's conscious and we should prevent them from feeling that pain yeah and time and it's and again this concept of pain came up and even you know at unc we we have to as graduate students take these courses in the responsible conduct of research um and in one of our sessions, we, we talked about the ethics of animal research. Mm-hmm. And we had kind of an, an interesting twist where one of the professors was talking about the ethics of organoid research and this exact problem of, of how do we deal with these organoids becoming sentient. And hands down, everyone in that classroom said, well, I don't think it's right if the organoid can feel pain. Yeah. But then the question is, how do you measure pain? So with animals, they literally have a grimace scale that you can look at, you know, how much the animal is squinting its eyes. Mm-hmm. But or different body, where they're moving their body or trying to get away. Exactly. But this, this brain isn't moving around. How do you, there's no molecular switch. You can see if it's on or not. Yeah. Um, so people at this conference where they were discussing the ethics of, of organoid research said that, okay, if something's painful, you're going to try to avoid it. So if, if the organoid becomes averse to some, to some stimulus, then it's feeling pain. But that's still pretty vague. I guess the million-dollar question is, can organoids become conscious? And if so, what should we do? Yeah. Like, I just imagine... These little brains, like, starting to move around, crawling out of their Petri dishes, coming to attack us like some Stranger Things craziness in this last season. I'm just scared that people are going to look back at us 100 years from now and be like, they were doing that? I feel like Rachel thinks about so many things. CRISPR and... Yeah. Just the pushing of the ethical line, which a lot of scientists are excited about and okay with at the expense of thinking, oh, how will this affect the future? Yeah. I mean, I think at this point we can say that they're probably not conscious. Yeah. They don't have all the equipment to be conscious. They m- the electrical activity might be there, but only at the lowest of possible levels and not even all this, you know, the hippocampus, which helps you form memories, you know? There's just so mm-hmm. much that's missing. I think it's d- never too late to start talking about these things and start thinking about what the guidelines would be. I mean, as it is now, when you're... I'm These organoids are precious, so you, when you're done with them, you're usually using them for an experiment. But if something gets contaminated or it needs to be discarded, you just kind of throw it in the trash. <laughs> 
is that okay or do you need to do something to minimize pain before you do that another interesting ethical concept is that some people take these organoids or even just um like induced pluripotent stem cells not organoids and they graft them into animals so they put these cells into mouse models or just regular mice and um the purpose of this would be to you know can these cells incorporate into a mm-hmm. into a real network that's there can they become part of the brain but here we get tricky because now we've made a, a chimera animal that's a mixture of mouse and human cells and so it worked yeah it did wow. the brain hooked up to the blood supply and everything became vascularized um and it it started making neuronal connections so oh my god that's just i don't yeah, know if you've seen stranger things season three but this exactly sounds like season three mind flayer crazy ish happens <laughs> this is exactly that in real life in a lab but then you look at that animal that has human brain cells and you wonder oh my goodness i mean is that a, a new level of regulation when yeah. you deal with the, like should these animals be treated differently than animals what if with the human brain cells, cells take over over the mouse brain cells yeah i don't know Coming down the track now. I need to go take some philosophy courses. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of scientists would benefit from that. But I do think it's good that um, the researchers that are in the trenches on this work are, you know, they just held a huge ethics conference in October, so they're at least talking about these things. Yeah, that's fantastic because I think, I mean, with CRISPR, there's been less of that happening and with most of the things happening in science now you need to have ethical plans because the government's not going to be able to make costs fast enough for how quickly the science is progressing so if you can have people agree who are in the field not to do something unless you're certain scientists who just decide to do things anyway like gene edit who shall not be named yeah we're not going (laughs) to go back into that but Ethics are really important, and more scientists need to take it more seriously. So do your research. And no sloppy science. Uh-uh. <laughs>